0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. Today is our first session in the book of First Peter. We'll be discussing chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Now, I have to say, I love this book. It's probably one of my favorites. And I think maybe one of the reasons I'm drawn to First Peter, other than the fact that amazing truths can be found there, is that we see what God can do through a regular person who's willing to follow Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Peter was a fisherman. He was not a member of the wealthy elite, nor was he a learned scholar. He was a regular, working-class guy. Yet he was the one who stood up and addressed the confused crowd at Pentecost, boldly proclaiming the gospel message. And he is the one who wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this incredible book. So, 1 Peter was most likely written during the early 60s A.D., during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, while Rome was not systematically persecuting Christians yet, local governments such as those in the provinces of Bithynia and Pontus were beginning to take notice of them, and localized persecutions of Christians was beginning to take place. I believe the theme of this letter is centered on hope and encouraging fellow believers during a time of trial and difficulty. And that was a subject Peter was very familiar with. He was put in public jail in Acts 5.18. He was flogged in Acts 5.40 and placed in prison by Herod in Acts 12.4, all for preaching Christ. And yet none of this stopped him. He continued, despite intense opposition, to preach the gospel message of salvation through Christ. But he wasn't always this steadfast in his faith and commitment to Jesus. In Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, when Jesus begins to explain to the disciples that he must suffer and die, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, rebukes Jesus to his face. Then in Matthew 26, three times he denies even knowing Jesus. I think there's so much in the New Testament about Peter because he is so very human. He loved Jesus with his whole heart, devoted everything to the Lord, Yet at times he is conflicted and confused about Jesus' mission. He speaks out of turn. He's sometimes too bold. He speaks when he should listen. I mean, can you relate? I know I sure can. I think in Peter, we can see ourselves and can say, if Jesus saw the potential in him, then he can see the potential in me. So let's read 1 Peter verses 1 through 9 in the CSB. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, verse 1 begins by saying Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter walked with Jesus and saw Jesus with his own eyes. He was one of Jesus' twelve appointed disciples. Therefore, he had authority. Peter was a leader in the early church. Christian tradition says that he was martyred by the Roman Emperor Nero, and Christian writer Hegesippus wrote that Peter was to be crucified, and he requested that he be crucified upside down, because he didn't consider himself worthy to be killed in the same position as his Lord. John one hundred forty two tells us that Peter was originally called Simon, but Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which was translated as Peter. Now, Peter's writing this letter to those who are chosen, or God's elect, which means Christians. As Christians, we can take comfort in the fact that we have been chosen, chosen by God, not because of anything that we've done to earn it or merit his favor, but purely because of his grace and love. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd much rather be chosen because I'm loved rather than because of my merit, because I would constantly be wondering if I'm measuring up. But we don't have to worry or wonder about that. Because his choice is not based on us, but on himself. And his love and grace is abundant and eternal. Now, Peter's not only writing to Christians, but a particular group of Christians. Those who are scattered or dispersed throughout the five Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're described as living as exiles or strangers in the world. Now, this is not only a reference to their physical orientation, but to their spiritual orientation as well. You see, as Christians, our citizenship is no longer in this world. Philippians 3.20 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. Heaven is. So we, like them, are strangers here. We think and act differently than the world does. Our goals are different. Our outlook on life is different. So as Christians, as God's chosen ones, we are exiles, pilgrims, strangers in this world. And we, too, have been scattered throughout the world. Now, why would God want this for his believers? I mean, why would he want us to be scattered strangers? Well, could it be that the differences that people see in Christians will draw attention to Jesus and that God wants this attention to permeate throughout the world? So that everyone may know the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ? Verse 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, do you see the Trinity being displayed here? It is through the foreknowledge of God that we have been chosen, it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. And we are purified and freed from the condemnation of sin through the blood of Jesus. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in the salvation and transformation of human beings. God the Father chooses us, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, and Jesus saves us from the power of sin and death. What an investment God makes into our lives. I mean, how valuable we are to him. So it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us. Now, the word sanctification is a technical religious word that sounds very complicated, but really it isn't. I mean, it basically means the work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes inside the heart of a believer. The work of making a believer more like Jesus. And I believe the amount of work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes is in direct proportion to how much cooperation he receives from the believer I mean, the Holy Spirit can be quenched, according to 1 Thessalonians 5:19, by refusing when we refuse to yield to His leading. So, when we cooperate with what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in our lives, then that's when we're going to see true growth taking place. And we cooperate by living lives of faithfulness, obeying God's word, and staying in communication with Him. The Holman Bible Dictionary describes sanctification this way. Humans are created in the image of God, but that image has been distorted because of sin. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live into righteousness. It's an ongoing process that begins the moment a sinner receives Christ and is not completed until a Christian dies and is made perfect in holiness, The goal of sanctification is to become like Jesus in every way, so that we might obey him in every way. So let me be clear. The work of sanctification is only done by God, we cannot do it ourselves. Our part is to surrender to his Lordship and follow him. So Peter's going to be addressing the issue of trials in a believer's life, which is a difficult topic. And yet, how does he begin? Well, in verse 3, he says, Blessed be God the Father, our Lord, of Je- our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with praise. Now, why does he do that? Well, verses 3 and 4 tells us, Because of God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. You see, Peter's laying the foundation for the rest of the passage, I believe, in these verses. Peter is stating the reasons why we can rejoice even when we suffer. Because as Christians, we've been given a new birth. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we were changed. We were converted. We're no longer held captive by our sin. We've been made new because Jesus paid the price that our sins deserve. We've been born into a new family. The family of God. We are also born into a living hope. Now this living hope came to us through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. When Jesus was resurrected, he conquered sin and death so that they are no longer powerful over us. They are, we no longer are, have to submit to their power. We are forgiven, and when we die, we will be ushered into the presence of our Lord Jesus and will live with him forever. It is a living hope because it comes from Jesus, and Jesus is all-powerful and everlasting. Therefore, so is our hope. That is why we can have hope, and even in the worst of circumstances, because it's based on Christ. Not only have we been born into a living hope, but also into an inheritance. Romans 8.17 says, As God's children, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And this inheritance is permanent and indestructible. It can't perish, fade, or be defiled, because God himself keeps it safe for us in heaven. And it's an inheritance God wants us to have. I believe he looks forward to bestowing it on us, because verse 5 says we're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. I believe God is eager to give us our inheritance, that would be revealed when Christ comes back. Because why else would he be guarding us and protecting us? God loves us and wants to bless us, so he protects us. And how do we access his power? Through faith. God makes his power available to us through faith. And that's why we can, according to verse 6, rejoice. Knowing that we have an unending supply of hope and power, that comes from our merciful, loving Father God, who has an unimaginably great inheritance waiting for us, should prompt an attitude of rejoicing, even if for a short time we have to suffer grief in various trials, verse 6 tells us. We can rejoice no matter what our circumstances. But how do we do that? Well, I think by focusing on what we deserve and comparing it to what we've been given, I mean, as sinful humans, we deserve punishment and death. But instead of holding us accountable for it, Jesus became accountable for us, even knowing that it would cause his death. God gives us salvation through Jesus, abiding eternal hope for our future, and the power to overcome any obstacle. How can we not over-rejoice over that? All that God asks of us is that we believe it, have faith in him, And put what we know into practice. Notice he says in verse 6, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer. I mean, Peter appears to be contrasting the eternal nature of our hope with the temporary nature of our suffering. It also says you suffer grief in various trials. You see, he doesn't deny or diminish the reality that trials are difficult and they're painful, they cause us grief. But it isn't a permanent reality, and it doesn't have to be all-encompassing. The trials we face are difficult, and they are also varied. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. They are not the same for every person. But the beautiful thing is that the hope and power that God gives us is enough to meet each and every difficulty we face. No matter how unusual or unique or big a problem is, God has exactly what we need to overcome it. So, what specifically does Peter mean when he mentions the word trials? Well, from the Greek, it means to submit another to a test to learn the true nature or character, or a test given to make one stumble. Also, it means adversity, affliction, or trouble. There were many in Peter's day who tried to tempt Christians to deny their faith through ridicule and persecution. Difficult circumstances can often cause us to stumble in our faith, to doubt God's presence and His provision. But according to verse 7, trials, they can also be productive. James 1, 2, and 3 says consider it pure joy when you face trials, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Also in verse 7 of Peter, it tells us that trials can prove the character of our faith, which is more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire and may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So through trials, our faith can be proved genuine, so we can see just how valuable our faith is. Just like gold is refined by fire, our faith is refined through trials, and it will result in praise, glory, and honor And it reveals to others just how real and valuable our faith is. One commentator said genuine faith is not only of ultimate value to its possessor, but will also bring praise, honor, and glory to the one whose name Christians bear when Jesus is revealed. I recently read that Eastern goldsmiths would keep the metal in the furnace until they could see their faces reflected in it. May we see our trials as opportunities to reflect the face of Jesus to the world. Wiersbe says, Satan wants to use life's trials to bring out the worst in us, but God wants to bring out the best in us. If we love ourselves more than we love Christ, the fire, it will burn us, not purify us. Now verses 8 and 9 close by saying, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you don't have to have seen Jesus to experience the effects of a relationship with him. John 20:29 20, says, "Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe." Seeing is not always believing. I mean what we can't see is just as real as what we can. Second Corinthians four eighteen says we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I mean we can't see Jesus, but we can know that He exists because we experience a relationship with Him. And the joy of our salvation can be just as powerful, impactful, and life altering as as it was for those who physically walked and talked with Jesus. Now, verse 9 says that we are receiving the goal of our faith, which is our salvation. The phrase, are receiving, indicates continuous action. And I believe Peter's making an important theological point here. And that is the fact that Jesus continues to save us, even after we've been born again. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus to become our Savior and surrender to His Lordship, we became born again. We are no longer condemned for our sins, and we will live in heaven eternally with Jesus. That is a one-and-done action, once and for all. But that is not the end of Jesus' involvement in our lives. It's just the beginning. Jesus continues His work of salvation in the life of a believer by renewing our minds through His Word. He gives us power every day to reject sin and refuse temptation. He transforms us into people who are compassionate, patient, helpful, and forgiving. Jesus saves us from becoming the kind of hypocritical people that Satan is trying so hard to tempt us into becoming. But we must also remember Jesus doesn't force this transformation on us. It is a process, and it requires our involvement. In order for Jesus to change us into the people he wants us to be, we must learn and obey his words and follow him with our whole heart. My commentary says, For those who love and believe Jesus, salvation is past. He has given us new birth. Present, we are being guarded by God's power through faith. In future, we have an inheritance kept for us in heaven. So as Christians... Our past, present, and future are all completely covered. So our challenge question for the week is, are you worried about something from your past? Are you worried about something in your present? Do you worry about your future? If so, let's take some time to read through verses one through nine of First Peter again and meditate on all that we have been given and pray that God will give us a full awareness of the living hope that's made available to us through Jesus. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.